Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the DGA website at dga.org to watch or listen to hours of content such as past episodes of The Director's Cut, videos of the Guild's 75th anniversary celebration, and long-form interviews from our visual history program. You can access it all for free by going to the website and hovering over the Craft tab. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Ethan Hawke's new biographical drama, Blaze. Adapted from Sybil Rosen's memoir, Living in the Woods in a Tree, Remembering Blaze, the film tells the story of Blaze Foley, a songwriting legend of the Texas outlaw music movement that spawned superstars like Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson. Weaving together three different time periods as reimagined versions of Foley's past, present, and future, Blaze explores his love affair with Rosen his last dark night on earth, and the impact his songs and his death had on his fans, friends, and foes. In addition to Blaze, Mr. Hawk's credits include the feature films The Hottest State and Chelsea Walls, the documentary Seymour, an introduction, and the short film Straight to One. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Hawk spoke with director John Patrick Shanley about filming Blaze. During their conversation, Mr. Hawk discusses his intention to structure the film like a blues song, how he didn't want to deify the artist, and the lyric that inspired him to make the film. It, it really moved me and made me think about the ephemerality, the shortness of life, and that it's an improvisation, and you get as far as you get until they turn the lights off, and then that's what your life was. Uh, and in this case, you know, it was so clear that this guy was just revolving around this beautiful time in his life where he fell in love and had this idyllic, Eden-like thing going on. And so when you were making the film, which is very beautiful, did you, was it on, on some emotional level, like telling the story of your own life? I think that uh, it's, there's an amazing, uh, there's a line in one of his songs, right? He says, uh, it's a song called If I Could Only Fly. He says, I feel so good, I feel so bad, I wonder what I ought to do. Right? <laughs> and I heard this line, you know, about 10 years ago, something. And I thought, well, isn't that just say it all? You know, I, mean, I just thought it was about the simplest, most beautiful line I, I'd ever heard. And I thought, as I kept listening to Blaze's music, I felt like I understood something about whatever his relationship to depression was. And a, some, there's a great simplicity he has in articulating it that's built on the back of Mississippi John Hurt and Lightning Hopkins. And I mean, these are all the people that he listened to constantly. And uh, I'm... I felt moved by this longing to 
the more I discovered as I read about him and got more and more interested in him, the more I felt like I know what this guy's thinking about. And uh, I think that he was seriously bipolar, that's what they, somebody would call it now, and he really had a very magical experience with a woman uh, that where creativity erupted the way it erupts for like a bird or a wolf or something where it happens for the sake for no for no, asking nothing in return and that that's very beautiful in that as i did more and more research because i was kind of hypnotized by this person there's a there's a tape that you could get online when the internet happened there's this you can get that outhouse performance online it was most of his music was unavailable for uh, you know 15 years after his death or something and you can listen to this guy singing his heart out. He paid, took, he got his first royalty check for some cover that Willie and Merle did of a song that he did. And he, he kind of, whether it's a wishful thinking or death premonition or whatever it is, he spent all his money recording one live concert at this bar where nobody is listening to him. <laughs> and I loved it. I just so you hear people spilling beer. Jimmy, what, what, you know, what's the score? You know, and he's in the middle of some Neil Young. You know, and I just was like, what? This guy's gonna be dead in five minutes. You know, and the songs, the the artistry in the songs is so moving to me. You know, and um, that, and he he talks about this. There's a very powerful moment. I came across Sybil Rosen's memoir called Living in the Woods in a Tree. And she talks about, you know, she moved to Austin with this. They left the treehouse. They moved to Austin to make it. He couldn't handle Austin. He couldn't handle the pressure of Austin, right, <laughs> in 1981, right? He couldn't handle it. And so he wanted to follow John Prine and go to Chicago. He gets to Chicago. He can't stand Chicago. F these guys in Chicago. She's trying to have a job. She's trying to pay his rent. And... She's keeping this job, and he disappears for a couple weeks. And he comes back with the song, If I Could Only Fly. I feel so good, I feel so bad, I wonder what I ought to do. And she tells the story in her book, it's very powerful, of knowing that her lover and her best friend and this man that she really believed in had just finally done what he'd been wanting to do for about you know, six, seven years, which is to write a song that could travel time. You know, that could be a time traveler. And that he was, he was born as a fully mature artist. She knew it the second she heard the song. She's like, this song is going to be famous. And she also knew that they were breaking up. She could just hear it in the way he was singing it and the fact that he didn't call it if we could only fly. You know, she felt like it was a breakup song. So she told him it was over. And years later, as years progressed, when she found out he was killed, she wondered if she found out through friends that he had always felt that she had broken up with him that night, you know? And she got to hear the outhouse tapes when she found out that he was dead and, and heard him say, I should have called it if we could only fly. Mm -hmm. You know, and that in a way the song was traveling time, you know, and that it was healing things that needed to be healed in a metaphysical kind of way. And I was very moved by it. And I found uh, the whole idea of this treehouse juxtaposed with the idea of self-destruction. You know, that something that kind of, to me, the movie's two love affairs in a way. It's a love affair with Sybil Rosen, and it's a love affair with Towns Van Zandt.
love affair with the idea of being a great artist. You know, what, what if I could be immortal? What if I could be important? What if I could be remembered? What if I could be amazing? You know, and that, of course, the negative side of that is, you know, maybe if I set myself on fire, people will notice me. And in my experience, sadly, both these wells, the treehouse and setting yourself on fire, they both work. They both produce wonderful art. And you'd love it to not be true. To, you know? Yeah, but I mean, we are all going to die. Yeah. I mean, one way or the other. You know, I was thinking when I was watching that, I just thought, yeah, they're all killing themselves. But, but either way, they're going to die. Either way, they're going to die. So, yeah. I mean. That's what somebody today was doing. <laughs> I, I did this screening today, and this woman said to me, you know, it was like a, I could tell she was in a screenwriting class or something. She said, why would you tell us? that he gets killed right in the beginning. He said, let me tell you something, you're gonna die too. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not gonna blow anything. You know what I mean? It's just the, the she's like, but wouldn't it create tension if you didn't know? Right. I'm, like, I'm like, I'm sure it would, but I feel tense, you, you know? I mean, and we all know we're gonna die. That's not the point. The point is how we're gonna die, right? But also there, there's something kind of great about the fact that you tell us right up front I that he's so. going to die. And I mean, one of the greatest titles of any book ever written is Chronicle of a Death Foretold. Yeah. So, I mean, you read the, you don't even have to yeah. open the book, right, right, <laughs> you know, right, right. and you know he's going to die. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I had weird flashes during the film. I thought about Julian Schnabel. I thought I, I went to the screening of uh, Diving Bell and the Butterfly yeah. at, at the Ziegfeld uh, and, you know, enormous movie theater and Frank Marshall produced the movie and and uh, uh, Julian comes down and he had made one request that if they he would do this movie with Frank if they did this the premiere screening at the Ziegfeld that was what he wanted and as he said this he lit up a cigarette and he started smoking and I you know the whole audience sort of went he's smoking in a movie theater and and we all clutched our pearls for a second. <laughs> and we kind of realized, then I, you know, and then I, because I did too. And then in the next moment, I thought, we are so conventional. And so then when you see people like this who just wander in, in and out of civilization, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> pluck it at their guitars, it's, it, it reminds you, it's like, yeah, you don't have to live right. You know, know, you don't have to be a clean living person. You know, there's a, you probably know this. I, I'm going to forget the name wrong, but there's a famous kind of Greek character along with Socrates, Digenerous or something. Diogenes. Who said that? Yeah, thank you. You know, well, he represents a person who operates without playing along with society. I don't want to have a house. I don't want to have a wife. I don't want to have a kid. I don't want to make money. I'm going to be born and die without playing any of the games that you're playing. Right. And, um, you know, even we used to be a scene that got cut out, but one of the, it, it, the one of the great things about the end of Blaze's life that's so kind of confusing to me and so mysterious about people is Towns Van Zandt was really his only ally. Towns mm -hmm. is one of the most respected people writing in country music, and Towns loved the guy mm -hmm. and actually got him on a European tour that he was supposed to start two weeks after he was shot. But even though Towns is helping him out, Blaze still wouldn't sign the contracts promising that he would be there. He's like, I'll be there if I want to be there. I'm not signing anything, mm -hmm. you know? It's like, and 
you know, I don't want to sign your toilet paper, and I, I might, I might be there. It sounds to me like some Europeans want to see a for real hillbilly, <laughs> and I, I, I am definitely a for real hillbilly, and I might not want to stay. And Townsend saying, "Come on, do this, do this. Come on, buddy, you're broke." And um, I, I found that kind of fascinating. Well, the, Diogenes slept in a large ceramic jar right, in the right. town square masturbated in front of people while he was talking to them and defecated in public. Yeah. So yeah. he probably would have written country music. Yeah. He would have worn, he would have loved a duct tape suit, you know? And um, there's a thing around Austin about Blaze at the end of his life, you know, he'd be playing a club and there'd be about 13 people there, nine of whom would be other musicians. Mm. And he would get shit faced and read out of tampon boxes. You know, he would just read the instructions for tampons or, you know, cite some weird facts about Ronald Reagan or, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so now is there a, 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 I mean, there seems to be something going on with you and music because you did the Seymour and Introduction mm -hmm. uh, uh, film, which was, was really elegant and just really interesting, the exact place in the out of the limelight that he was, mm -hmm. is actually. Actually, I ended up in his apartment <laughs> listening to guy. play a duet after I, after I saw that film. Um, uh, and is that, is the music thing like leading you somewhere? I, I don't know where life leads yeah. me or you or anybody. Yeah. I don't, I'm following my gut. And I had a weird thing. I was really moved by Seymour and really interested in why my profession struggles to have a pupil-mentor relationship. There's a lot of energy spent teaching young people how to be 38, mm -hmm. you know? And there isn't a lot of energy spent teaching 38, 40, 42-year-olds how to be 82, mm -hmm. you know? And I felt at a, I just felt at sea. One of the things I really liked about the life of a pianist is they always have mentors. You know, the 88-year-old teaches the 66-year-old, the 66 teaches the 44-year-old, the 44-year-old teaches the 22-year-old, 22-year-old teaches the 12 and you always see yourself in a progression of learning. And there's something about the way that the arts have been just constantly turned into units of sale, and young people just kind of completely are forced into buying into it that I have an allergy to. Yeah. And... Um, and so I did that movie, and then I went, and I was kind of turned on by music, and I got offered to play Chet Baker. And so I played Chet Baker, and I worked really hard on this character, and I put everything that I learned about Seymour and everything into it, and I worked really hard on it. But you know, I still couldn't play the trumpet. Mm -hmm. And it really annoyed me. And the more <laughs> I talked to people who played with Chet, the more they would say that the best of him was in his relationship with his music. And that's, I couldn't get close to that. I could get close to insecurity, I could get close to addiction, I could get close, you know, I can get yeah. close to a lot of things, but I couldn't get close to that. And I said to myself, if I ever made a movie about a musician, I'd cast a musician. Why am, I'm an actor who's like faking doing the music. If it's about music, I'd like to cast a musician and teach him how to act. I've been acting since I was 13 years old, man. Mm -hmm. And I, I know a lot about it. And I felt confident in that area. Well, lo and behold, that's just a passing thought. A really great friend of mine, this musician I love, I've been around 15 years watching him bust his ass 
against the grindstone and nobody caring about his music. And he writes at a really high level. And he's a beautiful man. And I just loved him. And he was in my apartment. And his band broke up. He put 12 years. I mean, they were just mm -hmm. always about to make it. And he was, I said to him, man, you're, you're so great. You got to believe in yourself. He's like, you know, you're such a great musician. He said, I'm not a musician. I'm a cook. Mm -hmm. I'm a cook, man. Thanks. It's, but we don't all get to be movie stars, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm like, all right. I hear you, but what about Blaze Foley? Because he had taught me about Blaze. Mm -hmm. And I said, Blaze is operating at a really high level, and he never found a place in the marketplace. And you can't tell me that music's not good, you know? And he picked up the guitar, and he started playing Clay Pigeons. And I said, you should play Blaze in a movie, you know? And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm supposed to do that. Do, you know, but mm -hmm. I didn't know the story, and I didn't even understand my own heart about, I wanted to see Ben play Blaze. Yeah. And that's really where it started. So I just started writing and reading and writing and reading and reading. And I came across this memoir um, that, and once I found the treehouse, you know, this kind of Whitman-esque mm -hmm. thing where I could understand the man. You know, I see that beard and that duct tape as a mask. You know, it's like Falstaff. Yeah. You know, it's, we put on a personality and the personality takes over us, right? And, and, how does it happen? I wanted to see under the mat. I want to see under the beard, under the duct tape. You know, who wrote those songs? Yeah. Well, the thing, you know, you get, and that was very clear in the film, there's a certain point, like when I talked about the sort of beating heart of your life, there's a point in your life that's really genuine. And then very often, not always by any means, you masquerade that time in your life for the rest of your life. You know, yeah. you, yeah. I see it happen all the time. It's people, yeah. and it can happen at different ages, but they kind of walk into formaldehyde. Yeah. Something honestly awesome happens. And then they kind of want to keep it, and their own growth kind of stagnates. It particularly happens with any kind of fame or success, or failure for that matter. Mm -hmm. You can see it, you know, freeze people. Um, and there was something in the fact that his last words, as I was doing the research and stuff on it, his last words, according to the cops, were, please don't let me die. Mm. And I thought, now, how the fuck is a guy who's trying to kill himself for 10 years, why is that the last thought? Doesn't make sense. he was about to get it together. It's, it, we all feel that way, you, you know? But you know, but how many times also have you sat in an A meeting and people do get it together? Yeah, yeah. They had, you know, and I got shot in the gut. Luckily, they stitched me up and it was okay. And then I got sober and then I won the Academy Award. You know what I mean? There's something, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, what I mean is that what I was transfixed by is that this woman, his ex-lover, he, he, had, he had Polaroids of her on the, from the treehouse mm. in his pocket when he died. Mm. You know, so at least real life is so weird. If I would included that, it would have seemed corny. Right close up of the postcards. Right? <laughs> Yet there they were. She was wonderful, by the way. Alia Shawkat, isn't she? Oh my amazing? God. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful performance. And Charlie Sexton is Towns Van Zandt. You know, yeah. I mean, Charlie, for those of you who don't know, you know, he's amazing. And he's one of the great musicians of my generation. You know, I mean, he plays with Bob Dylan, he played with Bowie, he plays, mm -hmm. I mean, he's a great, great. He, he knew Towns, he knew Blaze. Mm -hmm. That was a beautiful scene, by the way. It's, uh, and I just want to ask you briefly about it. A scene in the hotel room 
where uh, where he sings that extended song, and the light blows out the frame a couple of times during mm -hmm. the scene in what seemed like real time. Mm -hmm. uh, was that intentional? Did you just have? Did that happen? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. <laughs> I wanted to make a movie about music. You know, I, I wanted it to be about music, and I cast musicians so that I could ask Charlie to play Marie, the song that I think is William Faulkner set to music. It's mm -hmm. one of the most incredible country songs ever written. And I could ask him to play it, and I could set the camera in the back of a, you know, Ramada Inn. Uh, and I could imagine the feeling that I had when I saw River. Phoenix in my own private Idaho. Mm -hmm. The feeling I had when I watched Philip Seymour Hoffman act, right? You know, of like, somebody like me is doing this really, really well, and I want it really bad, mm -hmm. and I love them, and I hate them, and I want to be them, and I, I, I want to be myself, and I, oh, the confusion that, that I want to shoot this in one shot and let watch Blaze Foley listen to Towns Van Zandt right at a, at a level that will live forever. Mm -hmm. And I want to see what that's like. And the amazing thing is, the thing about casting real musicians is like, so we do this in one, you know, we're just waiting for sunset. I said to Charlie, do you want to rehearse? Rehearse what? <laughs> well, the song. Uh, no? Okay, cool. But in a, I, I, the only cut I have in that is, there's, when I was about 23, around the time that you and I met, mm -hmm. you know, um, I saw Towns Van Zandt on an interview, you know, on some local TV station. He's coming to the bitter end. He played a thing. And he said this line about, if you want to be real, you know, it has to be nothing else. No family, mm -hmm. no friends, no job, no security. You want to be real? Get a guitar and go. And I, I, I watched it, and I just was like, what does this mean? Mm. And, and, and that coming out of the mouth is somebody who's like writing at such a high level and performing at such a high level was very dangerous. Yes. Really super dangerous. It felt dangerous. And so I, that shot to me is that speech. And what's funny about these actors is because they're, they're in it, right? They're like, it's like being with these grown men who are actually, they're fully mature artists who are also acting students, right? They're like totally into like, what's in my pockets, okay? I'm talking to them, I got Josh Hamilton there, talking to them about Stanislavski, right? I mean, I got the whole thing, they're all, they're all into it. So Charlie finishes the song, and Ben, you just see him go, where the f did that come from, right? And it's just kind of an awesome, true moment, right? It yeah. just comes out of him, right? But then Charlie says, is the other side of zippity doo <laughs> yeah? And I'm like, well, that's what the scene's about. Mm -hmm. I, he wants to get on the other side of zippity doo dah, and if that means I gotta get shot dead, I'll get shot dead. Yeah. Well, that's a good, frightening place to open it up to the audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to repeat the question. Okay, you're gonna repeat the, it. The, the so the the question is how much of the montages and were, were premeditated? Yeah, the intercutting of, you know, I knew I wanted to do past, present, future, right? I mean, that I wanted to do a braid of the way I, I feel like I experience life. You know, the future's always present, the past is always present, I'm always stuck right here. And, but they're all like bouncing off of each other. I knew I had non-actors as my leads and I had no idea how well they do. 
and I needed to create some flexibility for coverage. You know, of how I knew they could play music, and I knew I wanted the movie to work like a blues song, verse, chorus. Verse. I didn't want it to be linear, you know, like a beginning, middle, and end. I wanted it to be kind of circular and just kind of flow like this. And if you go with me, you know, like a good blues song, they say at the beginning, my baby's gone. You know, there's no plot you're hanging on to, but you, you trust that the song's going to come around and take you somewhere new. Some of them are built in, you know, where's, you know, there's certain one, where's Towns? Last night we played, it was at, uh, wait, I can't remember. You, you know, I mean, there's certain, certain cuts were, was the editing process extra demanding? Ben was far better actor than I'd anticipated. And it was extremely exciting. I had a lot of built-in experiences, uh, experiments, treehouse scenes. I was hunting for moments, and I got a lot more than I anticipated. And because of that, it was very confusing how to cut the film. Um, and, and to find, while I say I didn't want a beginning, middle, end, I have to give you the illusion that I'm at least moving forward, you, you, you know, and that you're swimming forward. And uh, it's a little hard when you're editing a movie and basically any scene can go anywhere. I mean, I had certain structural ideas about interconnective time, but once that's in play, I could do whatever I wanted, yeah. you, you know, and it can, you can get lost. Uh, and I knew that if I juggled too much, I'd lose you. You, you. you know that there's only so much of that you can take. And it is hard. Sybil is so beautiful. And it, seeing blaze through Sybil's eyes, the movie has an anchor. And when the love affair with Towns takes over, it's rudderless. But that's how you wind up dead on the street. So if I cut too much of that, then you'd be like, why is he dead on the street? You know, I, have, I had to find a balance there. Uh, I found it very moving. You know, I find it very moving at the end. There's scenes like where you come in on Towns and he can't remember the words to Poncho and Lefty. Mm. You know, his most famous song. And Blaze sings it for him. I, I heard that, that story that happened. And it's like watching two homeless guys, you know, help each other out. There's something really beautiful about it to me. And that they really cared for each other. Oh, that, the, I have to just throw in that wedding scene is very beautiful. Yeah. That super slow motion leap right. with the swing coming through is and that's, beautiful. And that's something that, that architecture of that, and that I cut that with, I met Blaze when he was getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. right. Like, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm like, you, you're trying to stop time. No, no, don't let time, I hate time. Fuck you, time. Mm -hmm. you, you know, but it comes, you know. And so a few, there's some fence posts in the movie that you can feel. And I think the movie gets good traction when that happens. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, some of the ones I planned didn't work, so you'd have to find others. And it was, it was a lot. Of, that part was, a, I had a great editor. And another question? Have you ever had a good idea and your partner wanted to sh shot it down? And what did, how did you handle that? In general, I find that, you know, directing is all about collaborating. And if people that you hire want to shoot it down, or people you chose to work with want to shoot it down, there's probably a reason. And if you could understand what that reason is, you would learn something that could be better about your own idea. Or there's a great thing, 
I'm sure you knew Mike Nichols, right? Yeah, very well. Well, Mike, I saw an interview with him, and he said at the very end of his life, he said, you know, the only work he did that he was really proud of was things when he couldn't remember whose idea it was. <laughs> you know, when, it, when it's like it came because I had a strong thing, and then she said this, and then he said that, and then this happened, and that actually made... And when you're a part of a collective where you're making each other stronger, um, that's really exciting. You know, if Ben, sometimes you got to push and say, Ben, you can go deeper, you know, and, and he would go deeper. And nobody wants, to, but sometimes if he didn't like something, I remember, I'll give you an example. Charlie Sexton, he's playing Towns Van Zandt. And I had this line that I loved, man. I listened to a lot of country music and I found this line from a Guy Clark interview and it's a very simple song. And he said, you know, it sounded to me like something Tupac Shakur might say. You know, you gotta live the song, man, you gotta live the song. And Charlie was like, that is such a dumb line. <laughs> you know, and I, I felt kinda, I liked it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, why is it dumb? You don't have to live the song. You gotta die it a little. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's a better line, <laughs> you, you know? And, and what do you mean, you know? And I could think about, what does he mean? And it reminded me a lot of, like, Kazan's book, you know? There's a reason that Brando sits screaming, I'm not a rat, still gives you the chills, right? Somebody died a little when they made that movie, you know? There's blood in that movie. And uh, everything has a price. Everything has a price. And point being is that if I was super attached to my, and I've spent my life around directors telling me what I can and can't do, and often they're blind to that there's a better idea in the room. They're just, they're so attached to the way they conceived it. They don't understand that she's actually giving him gold that is gonna make, and they don't understand that they just want their vision. And they don't understand that there is a great, greater vision possible than just your own vision. Every time, every time I've done anything good, um, truly good, it, it's been uh, a process where ideas are propelling other people forward. Um, I have a general allergy to anybody who calls their movie my film. You, you know, it's so collaborative an art form. It's so incredibly, you know, you, you know, if it rained four days in a row on this movie, I'd be fucked. You know, and for me to call it mine seems insane, you, you, you know? And so ownership of ideas, I find, you gotta put your best, if you really worked hard and you really know what you're talking about, people genuinely sense it and they'll believe in you. And if they don't, you might wanna ask yourself why. Well, there was also an interesting thing in the film that I found was that when they were playing their gigs in these roadside barns, <laughs> that it's like, I always figured it's three o'clock in the morning, they would go to the door and it's like the middle of the day. Yeah, it was yeah. always the middle of the day. I'm like, oh my God, they're like this well, in the middle of the day. This is what's wonderful. I, I have this amazing <laughs> thing where I said to, I, I said to Charlie, because he, he's, he just knows a lot about this world, right? He's played music his whole life. He played with Jerry Lewis when he was 14, you know? And he said, I said, you know, I wanted to know, like, so who would be on drums? Who would be on bass? Like, what would he, and, and, and Charlie Kidd. It was such an amazing idea. It's all about finding the right ideas. I had this idea. So many musicians love Blaze Foley now. I could have gotten the best backing band Blaze Foley ever had to play in that house. Mm -hmm. 
and I was going to do it. And Charlie Sexton said, you know that no one, Blaze couldn't get anyone <laughs> to play with him. No, you know, and if they did, they were people who worked at the bar. And Charlie gave me a dare. He said, I dare you to go to the local coffee shop where we were shooting in Baton Rouge. Go to the coffee shop and put up a sign that you're going to host a Hootenanny. Host a Hootenanny and get the best bassist in the room and get the best drummer in the room, get the best harp player in the room that shows up that night and ask them to play the waiters and the waitresses, right? Mm -hmm. And then when it's time for a musician, you just get them. I'm like, you sure we don't want it to sound better? He says, you don't want it to sound better. Mm -hmm. It can't sound better than somebody who's really playing, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's, you see, that's what Blaze would have wanted, you know, then that's who Blaze would play, play with. Uh, that wasn't the question, I digressed. Where, what was, anyway, what was I talking? Oh, the time of day, time, time of day. Nice. And, and I said, so what time is he? Because Blaze couldn't get a gig after sundown? Are you kidding? He'd be playing two in the afternoon on Saturday, pal. You know, that's part of where, I, and as I was talking about that, I loved, it's one of my favorite moments of the movie is he, he finishes the set and then he goes in and does a couple lines. Colton comes out and the bar's full to see a pretty good band. And they're pretty good. They don't suck. Mm. It's a lot of good bands. You know, it's tough. And I, that was, that to me was, is very moving. I love watching Ben just look at the other band and look at the audience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> onwards and upwards. Anybody else out there? Yes. He's, yeah, he's asking you me talk how a little bit about the way you collaborate with your DP and so Well, the DP and the production designer were, the DP was the cinematographer on Born to be Blue, where I played Chet, and that was the most improvisation I'd ever done in my life. And I knew I wanted a feeling of spontaneity in the set, that I knew I had these non-actors, you know, these musicians, they're actors, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying they're relatively inexperienced. And, I, and this guy gave me so much confidence acting in front of his lens. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of DPs that make you feel like you're in a Heineken ad, you know? Um, <laughs> How does that feel? Terrible. <laughs> and I see it, I literally, I, 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 I say it all the time. I see people get behind the Heineken I, ad. <laughs> I see young actors all the time, and, and they'll be really nice. They go up to young actors and go, you look so much better when you're like Oh, that. dear God. You know? And, and, and I have to say, would you say that to Denzel Washington? <laughs> you know, you're like, no. Then why would you say it to him mm -hmm. or her? Guys, try to play a fucking character. You're just not posing for your picture. Make it look good or don't. It's not my job to make your photo good. Do you, you know? But these young actors want to please people, right? But Steve Cousins is his name. He's Canadian. And he's a very, very centered person. And he said this thing to me right off the bat. He said, I please don't, I trust that you've seen a lot of movies and you know what you're talking about. Please don't mention Terrence Malick. Please don't mention William Eggleston. Please don't mention Roman Polanski. I don't give a fuck. Just tell me what it feels like. Tell me something you remember. Tell me something from your life. Mm. Tell me, I, be more specific, you know? So I could say, well, you know, there should be dogs and beer and it should smell really bad. And okay, okay, you know? Mm. And, uh, and I would talk to him about not wanting to deify the artist and he kind of had this idea, he's like, you know what? Let's just leave Blaze when he's talking in the, it's like, it's true, Blaze is okay, who has, what, what is she thinking about? And I love this, you know? It was so exciting to me, and he was very loose, and he would fill the actors up with confidence, mm. you know? Not, you look better like that, or you look better like, he was just, 
what else, what else, what else, what else, what else? And so I just sat there and I just tried to look through the monitor and see if it looked like my childhood. You know, I was born in Austin, Texas in 1970. My first concert was Willie Nelson's Fourth of July Picnic, 1976. And I just looked through and think, no, okay, there should be wallpaper. You know, mm, something should be spilled. More cigarettes. No, you know, more animals. Is there a cat? Why, what looks fake, you know? You worked with Phil, Phil Hoffman had this great thing. Something smells fake. What's fake? Is it, is, it, is it me? Is it my jacket? What smells fake? Is it you? Is that the right line? Are you saying the right line? I don't Something is wrong. You know, and if you just look and you just try to sniff out what smells like a movie, you know, and try to get rid of it. What smells like Josh Hamilton's really good about not getting caught acting, you know? Like, a lot of people love to act up a big old storm. And Josh is really great at helping the guys. And, and out, it was, let's all just talk to each other. It's fine if we just talk to each other. Let it go. There was a really nice sense in the film of when somebody had worn out their welcome, you always seemed to know it. Like, just that moment when the next moment would be one moment too long, you went somewhere else. And sometimes it was editing, and sometimes it was a camera move. But it was very... It was a very comforting instinct because you did feel as an audience member, this guy's taking care of me. Uh, what else we got out there? No, no, no. I'm the, D, I'm the DJ. I'm the guy interviewing them. That's, so you're, you subconsciously pick me up because you're just seeing the back of my head in the shot before that one. No, uh, no. <laughs> I wish I had. Yeah. It's funny, every time I watch any movie and it has special thanks at the end, I always look to see if I'm listed, even though I had nothing to do with the film. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Hope springs eternal. <laughs> I found uh, the idea of, I hate biopics. I hate the idea that somebody's life is, like you said, it's, it's never one thing. And, and um, I wanted to start it out with an unreliable narrator. I heard, I, I'm a huge Towns Van Zandt fan, and there's this, this, this amazing interview where he talks about digging his friend up. <laughs> it's like, and it's, it's insane. You, you know, but he says it. And, and you're like, okay, either this is true, and I'm like totally bourgeois, right? You know? Or what I really think is happening is a friend is trying to get people to talk about his friend and pay attention to their music. And he's such a wily cat that um, he, like Bob Dylan, like a lot, he understands the myth behind music. And if I sit and talk about what a nice guy is, nobody's gonna pay attention. If I say, you know what, I dug him up and got his grave and you know what, he was grinning. Everybody's gonna think, what the, who is that guy? I wanna know, <laughs> what guy, who, right? And it's, uh, I found, in a very wonderful way, I, I personally, for me, when I was writing it, of thinking about telling the story, of letting you know immediately that I don't know if this is true. I don't know if any of this shit is true. You, you know, it's part of why I wanted to play the character of the. I, I, I'm you, right? I'm learning about Blaze Folly, right? Who the hell is Blaze Folly? I don't know. And you get to. Uh, it just let me. I, I really enjoyed it. I don't. What? It was, it, like I said, it was, I really wanted one part of the movie to be after he was dead, one part in the highlight, and one part in the crisis. 
you know, past, present, future, in a, in a basic version. And, it, and the songs would be the little time travelers, little fence posts. This is the song when it was being written. This is the song when it, like, he can't barely even touch the song anymore. And this is the song years later when people said, isn't that nice? John Barrymore, when he died, they, they went and they stole his body and they brought it back to There's a lot of stories. Like this it. bar. Ralph Waldo Emerson dug up his wife. But wait, you have a better story? Well, I mean, just they, they, they brought him back to this bar, and the guy said, he looks really bad tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and that's for the penalty. This is a true story. <laughs> Lincoln had his son dug up something like yeah. four times, know. you know? So yeah. people do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's a great story. And actually, I played just exactly the way you described, you know? You just, at a certain moment, you go... Wait. You're like with it, and then you go like, oh my, okay. And Josh is really good in that as he's really listening. Good. Really, really he, good. He doesn't... They're good at it. I can't like that, you know, the, the, the story about the enema is great. Uh, <laughs> it, the, the jokes really work. The thing well, about the harmonica is maybe my biggest laugh in the movie. They're, they're raconteurs. You yeah. know, the thing about balladeers and music, they're, song, you know, they're just singing songs, telling jokes, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I feel like I've worn out my welcome, speaking of being a good editor, and I feel like, no. Oh, All right, we'll we do go. a couple more then. Oh, one more. Do we have one more? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, I tried to do a thing, you know, it's really, I didn't want to make a movie about Blaze Foley and deify the artist. You know, the, part, the point of what, when he says this thing, I, I don't want to be a star, stars shine for themselves, I want to be a legend, a legend stands for something. For me, what Blaze's legend is, is the legend of all the artisans all over the world that don't get any awards or fancy record deals or fancy anything, but they still write at a high level and push themselves, or they act, or they paint, or they dance. That's what he means to me, and that there's Blaze Foley's all around us. The point of the movie is not that isn't Blaze awesome. That's one. It's aren't you awesome? Uh, you know, it's, and it's hopefully... The, the design of it is whether it's the woman at the waitress or the, uh, the bus boy cleaning up the broken glass or whether it's the guy who ends up killing him who wanders or whether it's the gravedigger at the end. You know, the, the movie ends on a line of the guy we've never met before, right? I mean, there, we're all every, sorry for your troubles, man, but everybody's got them, right? It's the blues. It's, we all... We're all, who is she? What is she thinking about when she's singing this song? Is she thinking about a song or is she thinking about, you know, what she's going to do tomorrow or the, what's going on at home? I, I don't even know, but I, I love the idea that Blaze went unnoticed. These people are unnoticed in our movie. There's people unnoticed here tonight. There's people, you, you know, and, and I'm trying to get your brain thinking like that. That's the idea of going, who is she? What does she have to do with it, huh? Mm -hmm. you, you know, uh, I, I, it moves me. Well, I want to thank Ethan Hawke and all of you. Oh, tonight. thanks for coming, you guys. It's a wonderful Beautiful night film. to be Beautiful here with film. you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as award season approaches, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.
This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.